My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns, and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement, or other person. All right, let's start the show. Hey everyone, today we're discussing OBSGYN with Dr. Xavi Fernando, who's an obstetrician gynecologist. Hi Xavi, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Pedro. Can you tell us a bit about your journey from medical student to where you are now? Um, well, when I first uh, when I first got into med, med school, um, ONG was actually the, the only profession that I didn't want to do. Um, I was asked by somebody whether I knew what I wanted to do and I said no, nah, don't want to do ONG. Uh, but that was mainly because I didn't really know very much about it at the time. Uh, all I really knew about it at that time was basically that you get sued if you do ONG. Um, I, and that didn't really appeal to me very much. So I, I went in like a lot of other medical students wanting to do paediatrics. Um, I think again for the same sort of reasons, most people who want to do paediatrics have never actually worked in paediatrics or done it. Um, and at that time it just seemed like something fun to do. Um, when I did my, uh, th- after my third year uh, of med school, I was quite interested in neurology um, and uh, I just liked how, you know, something happens here in the brain, something happens here in your leg. It just made sense. Um, but after a little while, I realized that for, for me, I needed something where I could fix the problem. And a lot of the time in neurology, I think, while it's very stimulating from a, from a, um, from a uh, learning point of view, diagnostic point of view, um, a lot of the time the actual management is not definitive. Um, so then in fourth year, I thought, okay, let's see how this goes. Maybe I'll, I'll enjoy my paediatrics rotation. Did my paediatrics rotation, hated it. Uh, and then I was a bit lost and I was still going back to neurology. Then I did my ONG rotation. And ONG, I went in with a fairly open mind because I didn't really know what it was. Um, and I really loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. I spent about 100 hours on labor ward and only got two out of my three deliveries. Um, and But I still really enjoyed going back. Um, and because of that, I thought, well, maybe I should think about doing this. So even though I've had such a crappy time on this rotation, maybe I should go back and maybe, maybe that, and I've still really enjoyed it, maybe I should actually think about this as a career. So then in f- uh, at the end of fourth year, um, I decided I wanted to do a BMED Sci and I was throwing up between um, paediatrics and ONG and I wasn't really sure between the two. So I um, interviewed a couple of uh, supervisors and asked them what sort of projects were available and I picked one that I enjoyed that I thought could cross over a little bit. Uh, so I did uh, my BMED Sci looking at the, out- the baby outcomes of IVF in women with endometriosis. So basically trying to cover my bases for both pediatrics and ONG. <laughs> um, and smart. yeah, well, when I, and so it worked out really well. Um, the, my BMSI went really well. Um, the professor that I did it with was fairly well known in the field. Um, and I think that helped as well. And then in final year, um, I still had this, I knew now that I didn't want to do pediatrics. I knew that I was probably going to do ONG. Um, but I still wasn't sure whether I wanted to do neurology, so I did a elective in both uh, ONG and another one in neurology as well. Still really liked neurology, but I liked ONG more. So then I went down that way, and the rest, they say, is history. Um, yeah. How did you end up doing two electives? 
Um, so in final year for us, um, we had the option, or actually the neurology elective was actually a, my medical elective. Ah, right, yeah. So I did my neurology elective as my medical elective. I did a ONG rotation as my specialty. And then for my actual elective where you can go overseas and stuff, I did some ONG in Western Samoa. Um, and I really enjoyed that too because that was all... Uh, delivering babies and things and it was really fun because the women there just cough and spit out babies and it was <laughs> and so you got to I got to actually deliver a lot of babies when I was a medical student at in Samoa. Um, have have you gone back to third world countries to do any obstetrics work? I haven't yet. Um, <clears throat> this is an interesting question because we get trainees who are really interested in this and uh, and I'm interested in it too. However, I, I've never felt as a trainee, I never felt comfortable going to a third world country to learn from or learn off the third world patients. Um, it just never sat well with me. So now that I'm a specialist, my plan will be at some point to um, to go overseas and do some aid work. But I think before I can do that, I need to be settled with my family. Probably this will be something I do towards my retiring days when mm-hmm. my children are grown up and moved out of house. I don't have to worry about bringing them to a to a third world country um, when I'm more secure from a financial point of view, all those sorts of things. Once I'm settled, also then the advantage of that is I'll have the experience and the knowledge to actually make a difference in a third world country rather than use them as guinea pigs, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd like to be able to go there and probably do some teaching because, again, it's all well and good to just go over there and, and deliver babies for a couple of months and then leave. But if I can go there and teach them the, the knowledge and the skills that I've learnt um, so that then they can teach it and then basically leave some sort of legacy, I think that would be more worthwhile. Yeah, it's the notion of giving a hand up rather than a hand out. That's right, that's right, yeah, exactly. Yep. Why did you hate peds? <laughs> Good question. Um, I, I really like kids and I have always really liked kids and that was the reason why I was interested in peds in the first place. But, uh, but when I did the rotation, what I found out was basically you're mostly dealing with parents and parents uh, as you probably know are bad enough as it is Um, but uh, parents of sick kids are just another another beast Um, (laughs) not something that I felt like I wanted to deal with for the rest of my life so that was the main reason um, I decided I didn't want to do pediatrics yeah Uh, yeah. and what was the reason for loving Opsgyne Oh, there's a lot of reasons. There's a lot of good reasons to like ONG. I think probably the main reason, the thing that keeps me coming back, is sort of a selfish reason. Um, I just really like the thanks. I just like I like people saying thank you. I like people. I like the smiles on their faces, the gratitude that you get in ONG. I think maybe I'm biased. I'm probably biased. But I think that you don't get the same level of thanks in a lot of other fields, um, and and the the number of time like you frequently save people's lives almost on a daily basis um, and they know it i think most of the time or a lot of the time they know it um also the the stakes are different like if you're a neurologist and you're looking after a stroke victim an 80 year old stroke victim um, it's very different to looking after a 30 year old woman who's just had a baby who've got both of them have the rest of their lives in front of them the stakes are quite high and the stress the 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 rush, the adrenaline is a bit um, a bit higher as well. So you need to be able to deal with that. But if you can, it's it's quite a buzz um, when you can when you can do something that not many other people can do, and you can fix a big problem, potentially big problem, and prevent or prevent a big problem from happening. It's a it's a nice feeling um, to be able to do that regularly, and that job satisfaction I think is what means that 
I can get up in the middle of the in the night and still I can enjoy it um, because it's still a really nice thing to be able to do. Um, the patients in general, particularly in obstetrics, are in general quite healthy. So uh, I never I was never one for chronic illness. I just it was it's a difficult thing to manage and and just something that I'm I haven't got the aptitude for I think. Um, but for for um, obstetric patients, um, procedural skills I think it's just a really nice job to do. Okay, um, and you're doing your PhD now. Why have you transitioned into doing a PhD? Yeah, this is another question that I get fairly frequently because most people do their PhDs to try to get onto a training program. So I didn't need to do that um, when I was applying for the training program. So, uh, but I've always kind of wanted to do one. It might be because my dad is a, my dad's an engineer and he's got a PhD and he's always said he's I'm not a real doctor until I've got a PhD. <laughs> it might be that nice, no, not that. It's um, when I when uh, when I did my BMed Sci. So in in med school I did my BMed Sci with um, David Healy um, and uh, he sort of inspired me to do more research. And my intention was always to do a PhD, and it was just about timing. And I decided that I, I, I decided that once I'd gone onto the training program, I decided I'd just do my PhD at the end of my training program. Um, so, so I've, I'm in the last, hopefully, last few months of my PhD now. Um, and then uh, once I wrap that up, I'll probably do some more research, but maybe not as not as heavy research as I've done in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um- can you tell us a little bit about being a male in Obskine and how that how that might differ if you're a male or a female? Um, I think as a medical student, being a male in ONG is, is difficult because patients don't, um, well, they don't really like having intimate examinations where, by students in the first place. And then if, it's, if you're a guy as well, it makes it more difficult. So I found that hard when I was a medical student. Um, as a registrar, I think in general it's fine. Um, most patients are, uh, accept that there are men and female, male and female obstetricians. Um, it does get tricky on the rare occasion, particularly with certain um, cultural or ethnic groups. Um, and in those situations, it can get challenging um, when there's no alternative. And uh, and I've been in only, but only very rarely, I've only been in really two situations I can think of where um, a patient refused care from me in an emergency situation. Um, and I had to call in a female doctor to, to sort of handle that situation. So this was in the middle of the night, something that doesn't happen very often. Um, as a obstetrician, so once I finished, once I finished my training and became a specialist, it's a general rule. Uh, all the male obstetricians kind of know that it takes a good, maybe eighteen months to twenty to 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 two years before you're busy as a male obstetrician. Whereas the girls will start and then straight away they'll be busy within a couple of months. Um, and I think that's sort of again the the nature of the of the profession. I mean, um, I think most women. Uh, well, a lot of women probably have a level of distrust from males in general. Um, maybe not a lot of women, but some women do, um, and that's that probably leads lends to it a little bit. Um, and the other thing I think is a lot of women just don't want guys looking at their vaginas, um, and uh, and they and and like while for us, you know, it's a job. That's just what we do. For patients, they may not necessarily see it that way. Um, in, but in my experience, I think that if you're a good obstetrician, if you treat patients well, um, if you are approachable and affable and you know what you're doing um, and you're skilled, 
but you also know your limitations, then I think patients recognize that fairly rapidly and you'll get, you will get busy as a male obstetrician if you, uh, if you have the right qualities. How do you make those first few I guess, the first few patients. First few patients yeah. Well, for me, it was interesting. I don't know how much I can tell you, but uh, for me, it was interesting because I because I became a specialist while I was doing my PhD. So I did my first year of my PhD, then I became a, a consultant, um, and then I still had another two years left of my PhD. So my intention was not to start private practice until I completely finished my PhD. Um, but then... Uh, which should which was which is this year so but then last late last year a couple of the actually yeah two of the scrub nurses that i work with um asked whether i would uh when no, they said when are you starting private and i said oh i was thinking of starting next year i'll hurry up and start now because i want to get pregnant and, and i want <laughs> you to deliver my baby and i said yeah. oh well and i and I, and these are like you know these are scrub nurses so there's a it's a it's a good it's a good, um, it's a nice feeling when you have people that you work with who've seen you operate, who's, who would still would like to trust you with their, their and their baby's lives. It's a nice feeling. So, uh, so I said, all right, I'll start. So I started private practice basically for them yeah. um, so that I could deliver their babies. And, uh, and once I started that, I thought, well, now I've just got them, I might as well start fully. So I started advertising and doing all that sort of thing. And, uh, and it's getting busy now. I've just delivered the first one about a month ago and the second one's due in about a month as well. So, um, so, that's, uh, so my deliveries have only just started because yeah. it's, cause once, you, once you start seeing a patient in pregnancy, it's nine months before they actually have their baby. Um, yeah. So we're, yeah. I'm starting to get that. So it's going to start to get busy now. Yeah, okay. You mentioned uh, litigation at the very start of this. Can you talk to us a little about litigation in OBSGUN? Is it actually a big problem? Um, I think ONG, the main thing with ONG is we get sued a lot, um, but also the amounts that we get sued for are quite high usually. Um, I think that um, the best cure for litigation is prevention, and the best prevention is just maintaining um, a good rapport with your patients and being honest with your patients. It's the same as what we learned in medical school. I think these days it will be less of a problem than it was um, in the older days uh, from the point of view that um, I think generally our doctors are better at communicating these days than they used to be. However, on the flip side of that, the litigation culture is increasing uh, probably as a reflection of other countries as well. Um, but, uh, but the litigation culture is increasing. So I think it probably will offset and it'll stay about the same. But um, What are you getting uh, sued about? Yeah, so in general, the things you tend to get sued about I think in medicine in general and in obstetrics is if something goes wrong but you didn't admit it or if you said it was somebody else's fault or if you didn't tell them that something went wrong or so it's usually uh, comes from a level of dishonesty or um, or uh, withholding information. withholding information yeah um, it's unusual to get sued if you've made a, just made a mistake and you've admitted that mistake and then you fixed the mistake. Most people, I think, wouldn't. I think most people accept that you're human and that you can make mistakes, as long as you can show them that you've accepted it and you can prevent it from happening again. Um, I think the last thing that people would want is to have the same mistake happen to somebody else and they want that reassurance that that's not going to happen mm-hmm. um, and I think that the more you can do that the less likely you'll be sued um, but I also think that sometimes you just can't prevent it mm-hmm. um, and 
suing is a big step. Like you, you're more likely to have a complaint um, than be sued. Um, and if you get to the stage of being sued, uh, it's usually fairly serious. Something. Yeah. Um, the other the other things that can get you sued are if you've poorly documented something or if you have done something. Obviously, if you've done something not professional or, or illegal or unethical, then it's very easy to get sued, and those things should be um, should be completely avoided. Um, and uh, but if you if you um, if you do if you're a good doctor and you're a nice person, I think a lot of people uh, they wouldn't. There shouldn't be any reason for someone to sue you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the Med Collab. That's T H E M E D C O L A B on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. What's it like only dealing with females and I guess completely not dealing with almost half the population? Yeah, well, the last time I actually had a male patient was probably when I was an intern, which was eight years ago. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, there's fertility, infertility, um, and in fertility you do see males because you have to assess them for fertility because it takes two to have a baby um, in general. Um, and... Uh, the so i don't know it's a good question i i don't miss it i don't miss not seeing guys uh i don't uh, yeah it's just again part of the job um it's probably the same as if you asked a cardiologist why how is it to or maybe a cardiothoracic surgeon um what is it like just to operate on the chest mm-hmm. uh and you know you never operate on the legs or the abdomen or it's yeah. probably a similar thing to that you just get that's just what you do um yeah so this question might be a little bit um, different for you, given that you're doing your PhD. But can you, te- can you tell us about your specialty and what a typical day for an ops guy, O and G person, might involve? Yeah. So it depends. So if you're, uh, do you mean as a registrar or once as you're a consultant? consultant? As a yeah. consultant. Okay. So if you're a consultant and you are doing most, I think a lot of consultants like to have a bit of public work, a bit of private work. Um, that's what I want to do. Um, some consultants just do private work. Uh, the money is better in private, but Public work has other advantages, like uh, you can do more teaching, um, you can uh, participate in quality audit, that sort of stuff, um, keep up to date, and you can also self, it's easier to audit your practice because there are, you can bounce ideas off other people, you can hear what the updates to knowledge are. So my um, average day, if I wasn't doing a PhD, would probably be something like uh, in the morning, I might consult in my private rooms. Um, in the evening, I might operate uh, on a Caesar list or a gynae list, public or private. Um, and then, and that might alternate or change depending on the day. Um, because I'm doing obstetrics, it basically means that I could at any time, so that means any time during the day or at any time on weekends or public holidays or whenever, whenever. <laughs> um, I could get called in for a delivery. Uh, and that could be at any of the hospitals that I deliver at. So at the moment, I deliver at three hospitals, and they're all probably about 10 to 15 kilometers away from each other. So if you, uh, if I had a, 
if I had one lady delivering at one hospital and another lady delivering at another hospital at the same time and I was consulting at the same time, then I would have to figure out which one I need to go to first, which one's more important, so I'd have to prioritize. Um, and I would have to uh, make sure that everything turns out well for all the patients as best as they can. If I get really stuck and had to be in three places at once at the same time, um, I could always call a friend and get someone to cover one of those deliveries if I could, um, if that ends up happening. Hopefully it doesn't happen. Um, Have you heard of stories of that happening? Yeah, yeah, it happens sometimes. So some, some of the obstetricians will do 30 deliveries a month privately. Um, wow. And if, you do, if you're doing 30 deliveries a month privately, it basically means you can be woken up 30 times in a month over in the middle of the night. Yeah. Or you could be woken up three to five times for three different patients in one night. So mm-hmm. those sorts of things can happen. Yeah. And if you've got, and you could have deliveries happening at the same time in different hospitals, um, which can be risky. Um, at the moment, it's not an issue for me because I've only just started private, so I haven't, I'm not that busy yet. Um, but it could become a problem in the future. And how might your split be in <coughs> terms of obscine inpatient, outpatient, or more, more so, I guess, deliveries and outpatient clinics? Yeah. So at the moment, I probably do more obstetrics than I do gynae. Uh, probably 70-30, I'd say, obstetrics Is that by choice? Not really. Um, there tends to be more obstetrics in general than there is gynae. And I think this is why our trainees often find that they are well-trained in obstetrics by the end of their training, but their gynae is lacking. Uh, I think part of it's because of the number of trainees, but, but more than that, I think, is the actual uh, availability of work. So the... The number of women having hysterectomies is probably less than the number of women having babies, yeah. if we put it that way. So the, there's just less gynae in general. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's probably why it's 70-30 at the moment. That's in private. Public, I do a lot more obstetrics than gynae, again, for a similar reason. So the public gynae unit is nowhere near as busy as the public obstetrics unit, so they need more staff to cover the obstetric unit than they do for the gynae unit. Um, so that's probably part of the reason. Um, you can choose in ONG you can choose one or the other if you want to so if you don't like gynae you can just do obstetrics and vice versa and some people have Um, at the moment I feel like I'm still young I feel like I want to keep the skills up as long as I can and then let one or the other go depending on which where it takes me because what will happen is probably I'll get more referrals for one than the other and Mm -hmm. then that will become the bulk of my practice and then goes on from there We've talked a little bit about uh, why gynae is so great. Can you tell us what aspect of your job that you struggle with the most? Ah, uh, yeah. Okay, that's a good. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, I think the hardest thing. If you asked me this uh, when I was a registrar, I'd probably say the hardest thing was uh, dealing with the you know the two percent of times where it's really really bad and something you get a really bad outcome. That's probably what I said as a registrar. Um, as a consultant, I actually think it's now the unpredictability is the hardest thing. So the fact that you could be out to dinner or you could be, I don't know, um, you could be consulting in your clinic or you could be teaching your medical students and then at the drop of a hat you have to be 10 kilometres away to deliver a baby. So I think that is now probably the hardest thing. I'm actually hoping, you know, if you like in another way, I actually hope at the moment... I'm sure that a lot of my colleagues will say that I won't think this in a couple of months, but I hope that when I have my ladies coming in labour and delivering, that they come in in the middle of the night because it means it then won't interrupt my 
daytime ah, operating. Yeah. Um, but of course, it will still interrupt my daytime operating because I'll be sleepy. <laughs> but uh, but it but that way I can then make everybody happy. Uh, uh, at my at sacrifice of my own sanity probably um but that's that's just to give you an idea so i think the unpredictability is probably the the biggest challenge in ong as a consultant do you think ong is uh very competitive as a specialty to get into uh yes it is it is and it's more so now probably about 15 years ago it wasn't um about 10 years ago, it started to become quite competitive. That's what, That was when I got in. And now I think it's very competitive. Um, we frequently have residents who apply and don't get in, and it might take them two or three tries before they get onto the training program. Um, and how are they making themselves more uh, desirable candidate? Um, so these days, I had a look at the point structure recently for, um, for the ONG College in Australia, and um, a lot of points are afforded to rural or being rural, either practicing rural or planning to practice rural um, or being, coming from a rural area. Uh, research only gets a few points, so it's not as big as it used to be, but it's still you know, an easy still place points. to get points. Yeah. Yep. Um, and clinical experience is the other big one. So a lot of people will get maximum points for clinical experience before they actually even apply for the first time. The other thing that's changed since I applied for the training program is now um, now there's a limit to how many times you can apply. So you can only apply three times before they say we're not going to accept your application oh, wow. anymore, um, which would have changed everything. If that rule was in place when I applied, I wouldn't have applied as an intern and I wouldn't have got in so early into the training program. Um, and uh, so that rule has changed um, has changed the way it works now. Um, in a way, I think it's probably a good thing because... Uh, it's, I think it's better if you haven't got in after three tries, the chances of you getting in are very low and you're probably better off cutting your losses, if that's the case, um, and finding something else. And I think previously we had people trying for four or five years and then still not getting on and then then being stuck without anything or not knowing what to do. Um, and I think that that is, a, is, a, um, is something that we can, ex- we can stop by doing that. How did you manage to get on in intern year? Or just uh, after? I think I was just lucky. Um, I did. I think. I think the main, the thing that was different that I did at that time was so back when I did my BMed Sci, um, thirty people in my year level did it, and the year before me only seven people did it. So it was a fairly like not everyone did it. So it made you different. Um, the other thing I did with my BMed Sci, which I think anybody who's doing a BMed Sci should try to do, is present. I presented it at a at. A, big international conference, um, an oral presentation, and then I also published it in a high-impact journal um, while I was a medical student. So this meant that by the time I was an intern applying for the training program, even though I'd never worked in ONG before, I had a year of research with a well-known professor. I had Bibetsai um, in ONG. I had um, a publication in a high-impact journal in ONG and a presentation at a, at a well-known um, international conference, oral presentation. Um, so I had stuff that set me apart from everybody else at that time. So this is now ten, go, about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that was enough to, I think, set me apart enough to get me onto the training program. For people who don't have as much drive to do research or it doesn't interest them as much, how can they set themselves apart, do you reckon? So uh, I know other people um, have done aid work overseas with the MSF or um, some people have you know, gone to Africa and, and um, started a library or a school. Uh, these are big projects, but they're the sorts of things that could set you apart. 
um, other things, even if you come up with little um, programs, little anything, anything that is out of the box just shows that you are thinking beyond just the work and the medicine. Um, Projects like this, I think, will help you, this sort of um, podcasting, radio projects, (laughs) writing books, um, journal articles or papers, opinion pieces, anything that you can you can add to your CV will help you. It won't hurt you. That's the main yeah, thing to think about. Yeah. Where do you see your field in five to 10 years? And how does, uh, uh, I guess, occupations like GP obstetricians kind of come into play? Mm. I reckon in five to 10 years, there'll be more of a divide between obst- obstetrics and gynae. I think we're already starting to head that way. Um, I think that um, obesity is going to be a big problem for us. It's already becoming a big problem for us um, because it just makes everything a lot more difficult and it's something that doesn't look like it's going to get any better anytime soon. Um, I think our field will have to adapt to that um, and that there's a lot of research potential in that area because that's going to be the future, unfortunately. Um, and what was the second part of the question? And how might GP obstetricians kind of come into play? So GP obstetricians, I think, are also now becoming more skilled and more able to do complicated parts of pregnancy management and gynecological management. Um, I think the advanced diploma uh, obstetricians in the country are particularly well uh, or particularly good at doing that sort of thing, managing labours, doing deliveries, um, caesareans, instrumental deliveries, that sort of thing. And that will become... A bigger thing I think in the future Um, however for specialty trainees um, I think people who do advanced diploma of obstetrics are usually those who want to work in the country as um, GP obstetricians Um, most of our city um, GP obstetricians tend to just do the basic diploma which um, doesn't let you do things like cesareans and instrumental deliveries but does let you do things like manage pregnancies antenatally and uh, with shared care models. Um, I think it's probably going to be stay very similar to that for now. Um, yeah. Um, you yourself have kind of gone through medical school, internships, straight into OBSGYN, and you haven't really taken any time off. Would you recommend people take time off? It uh, depends on who you are. Like, I, I've always been that sort of person. I've never really wanted... I've never wanted to waste time. Yeah. Uh, waste time is probably not the right word because I waste a lot of time. But uh, <laughs> but I've never wanted to... Um, I'll put it another way. So if I took a year off, what I would do in that year would be something like... Uh, locum or work in the country or overseas. Um, I might take up a... Uh, do a general surgical rotation or something like I do something that will help my career or or advance my career I do a fellowship somewhere or I do a so it wouldn't really be a year off like I took a year off to do my BMSI for me that was my year off yeah um my BMSI was my year off but it also got me a BMSI probably got me into ONG early it advanced my career but it felt like a year off yeah so that that was but that worked for me I think it doesn't work for everybody some people will need to take some time off and I think that if that means that you can then um, work better then do it Um, for me I think if I took a year off I'd lose motivation and I'd get slack Um, and so I just need to keep going with the momentum and I enjoy it I like that and so uh, a couple of weeks here or there off is enough for me um, to, to keep me fresh particularly I think if you like your job then it's easier to do that as well
If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. We've talked a bit about the unpredictability of the work hours. Can you tell us how many hours in a given week an ONG consultant might be working? And how much of that would be the unpredictable call-ins late at night? So that's a tricky question for me, um, but I can, I can probably give you a good estimate for a consultant. Um, I'd say that most consultants would consult or operate most hours of every weekday. So that means sort of eight to five, uh, most hours every weekday. Um, weekends, they wouldn't consult um, or operate usually unless it's an emergency or a call-in. So let's say you get called in. Let's say you do an average amount of deliveries would be about 10 to 15 deliveries a month. Um, so let's say you do, and you might have maybe an afternoon off in a week. So Okay, so that's like eight times five, 40 minus eight is 32 hours in the week during the daytime. The call-ins, um, if you do five to 10 deliveries a month, you'd be up in a week maybe three or four times called in for a delivery per week. Uh, so if, let's say three times um, each delivery, you'd probably be called in multiple times. So let's say about five hours per delivery. So that's another 15 hours, so that's 32, about 45. So about 50 hours um, during the week. Weekend, uh, again, depends on how many times you get called in, but again, let's say you can get called in a couple of times each day. Uh, I'd say not much, maybe 60, 70 hours. But that's not the problem. The problem isn't the number of hours. The problem is the timing of the hours. Yeah. So the problem is that you, even if you have an uh, afternoon off or even a day off during the week, the problem is that uh, when you get called, you get called, but you don't have to go in sometimes. So you get called at 2 a.m., can't get back to sleep. You just get back to sleep and you get called again at 4 a.m. <laughs> and then you just get back to sleep. You get called in at, t- at 6 a.m. You go in, you deliver the baby, and then you've got to uh, go home, have a shower, eat breakfast, and get to your <laughs> consulting list at, uh, at 8 a.m. So that's, that's the challenge, I think, in obstetrics. Um, so the hours, the number of hours, I don't think is, is the issue. It's the... It's the irregularity of the hours that will be the challenge. And have you seen people have big issues with this? Um, I think that most of us who do obstetrics uh, know this. So we do it expecting it. Yeah. Um, those who don't expect it often don't will drop obstetrics and they'll just go to gynae or they'll drop it all together and do academics or they'll do something else. Right, so okay. I think that it, weeds it, 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 it finds a way of weeding out um, people who can't do it and I think that's safe that's good because if you can't do it you shouldn't be doing it Um, if it's too much then you back off uh, and you need to be able to run on two or three hours of sleep sometimes and and but still be safe and that's tricky yeah Yeah. okay can you tell us a little bit about uh, your work-life balance at the moment and it might be different once again once you finish your PhD and go more into working at (laughs) clinic a little bit more Uh, and uh, yeah I guess what your work-life balance is like at the moment, my I think I think my work-life balance is really good. Um, I think again, you're right because part of that is because of the PhD. So I only do I do maybe two maybe two and a half to three public sessions a week. So that's, each session is four hours, so morning or an afternoon. So I do like a like a day and a half maybe a week um, publicly. Um, privately, I do a day a week consulting. Um, so that's like two and a half days a week. Uh, PhD another day and a half maybe so that basically fills up my week and then I have a day off 
but throughout the week. And then the weekend is usually off, um, but I sometimes do some on-calls or weekends for public, uh, public obstetrics. That's just haphazard. Um, so at the moment, I feel like I get a good amount of time at home. Um, I spend most nights at home. I get most nights at home. I'm there, you know, for uh, dinner, bed, and bath time for my for my daughter, and then um, weekends. Most weekends, I'm home as well for that sort of stuff, family stuff. Um, so I feel like I've got a good balance at the moment. And in terms of other consultants who are doing mostly clinical work, do you think that their work-life balance is adequate or is it more work than life? It depends on the consultant, but I know several consultants where I think it's definitely more work than life. And I think it's, a, but it's a conscious, it should be a conscious decision. It should be something that they've decided that that's how they want to prioritize things. Yeah. Um, and, and so for me, I think I've decided that I still will prioritize family um, over work. But sometimes to get family, you need to work. Like to, yeah. to have your family happy, you need to work. So it's a balance. Um, and I think that I'm trying to keep it balanced towards family more than work, if that makes sense. Do they have, uh, there's so many opportunities for you to be called in at random times. Does that mean you can't like take a weekend away or do things like that? And does that bother you at all? So if we need to take a week away, you, can, you still can. So all it means is that you, you call a friend and you ask them to cover your private patients. But if, you cover, if they cover your private patients and your private patients deliver, it means that the patients don't get you delivering their baby, which is what they hope for or what they pay for. Um, also, you don't get to deliver their baby, which is also a shame. What you hoped for. <laughs> what you hoped for, because you know, you've looked after them your, their whole pregnancy and you get to deliver their... It's nice to finish it all off and delivering their baby. Um, so you can do it, but it's, uh, it's, it's a pain. It's also expensive because if you get someone covering your patients, then they get the delivery fee. So you usually pay them the delivery fee. Um, but you need breaks as well. So we all will do it, every, um, but usually a standard number of weeks, similar to what everybody else does. Um, and again, it depends on how attached to your patients you are and how attached your patients are to you. Um, I know one of, uh, the coll- one of my colleagues who works uh, in the same group as I do, he went to Adelaide for a week with his family um, and I was covering him for the week. Um, he planned it, he had to plan it, you know, nine months, ten months in advance so that he could tell all the patients booking in that he was away for that week so that they could decide whether or not they wanted to book with him. Um, he, that way he also, he, he also cancelled bookings for that week so that he wouldn't book them in advance so that he didn't have anyone due during that week. Um, so it requires some organisation. Uh, when I was, while I was covering him, he had two patients who needed caesareans electively during that week, and um, the patients really wanted him to deliver the baby, so he actually flew back from Adelaide, oh God. did the caesareans, two caesareans. I think if there was only one, he wouldn't have done it, but there were two, so he did, did the two caesareans and then flew back to Adelaide and joined his family again. Um, and uh, so you can do that too if you want to. <laughs> um, and then uh, during the week, I'd only, I only had to deliver one of his ladies, um, and that was fine, but he'll have to pay me for that. Yeah. Um, which is fine. Like, you know, if it's, if it's worth the trip, then that's what it is. And you need the trips every now and again. You need a break with your family. Um, and that's what we usually do. Yeah. Okay. So for the last section, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions. I'll ask them rapidly, but you can take as long as you want sure. to answer them. What's your proudest achievement? Whoa. That's a hard one. <laughs> <laughs> proudest achievement. Whoa. I would say my daughter, 
Except I don't think I don't know yet whether I'm proud of her. <laughs> she's only 14 months old. She's doing really well, but meeting I don't, all her milestones. <laughs> she's meeting all her milestones. So I don't, but I don't know yet. I, I think it's too early to say that she's my proudest achievement. She's definitely my best achievement. My proudest achievement. Jesus, that's a hard one. Um, I think that my proudest achievement was when I got into ONG. I think that probably was the biggest step for me career-wise. I think I felt really happy when I got into ONG. Um, getting into the training program was really good. And I've never looked back. I've never thought, I've never actually ever thought that I would do any other specialty. I've never thought, oh, maybe I should have done neurology yeah. or I should have done pediatrics. I've never thought that. It's always been, since I've started ONG, it's always been that ONG is what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, you found your calling. Occasionally I've thought, oh, maybe I would, if I did, someone actually, one of, one of my two group students last, last group asked me, if you, if you didn't do ONG, what would you have done? And I said, oh, maybe I would have become a school teacher, primary school teacher or something. And they, <laughs> they were surprised because they said, oh, you wouldn't have done anything else in medicine. I said, no, I don't think I would have done anything else in medicine. There's nothing else in medicine that would in- interest me enough. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, another curly one. What is success to you? Oh, man, these are like interview questions. <laughs> uh, like, like, especially interview questions. What is success to me? I think success means when you look back at your life and you look at all the big decisions that you made that you don't regret any of them. So I think if you are, if you are successful, you're, you, it means that you have no regrets. I think if you have regrets, you're not successful. Or if you have big regrets, you have, you're not successful. You'll make mistakes every now and again along the way, but I think, that, uh, I think that's success. There's a lack of regret. What's the best investment you've made? time, money, or otherwise? BMSI. BMSI? That was the best investment I made. Uh, it was a, a year, so I remember when I decided to do a BMSI, my, all my friends in my year said, oh, Shavi, what are you doing? Why are you gonna do a BMSI? It's gonna be a whole other year. We're gonna finish a year before you. We'll start earning as doctors a year before you, <laughs> and, uh, and all this. And I, and I said, hey, no, don't worry, it's only a year. I'm just gonna, I'll just do it anyway. And so I, so I did my BMSI. So then, uh, because of my BMSI, so that investment for me uh, meant that I got into ONG as an intern. And to give you an idea, um, when I was a level five, so that means fifth year of the training program, there was a girl who graduated med school a year after me, so because she didn't do a BMSI. So she was in my original year at, at, at med school. So she graduated a year after me. So when, I was, when I was a level five, senior registrar- You mean a year before you? So, uh, sorry, a year before me. So a she graduated. Yeah, yeah, she graduated. So this this girl graduated a year before me because she didn't do a BMSI, and then I, um, when I was a level five, she was a level one. Yeah. Now, of course, she did other things along the way, and I don't think it took a little while for her to decide she wanted to do ONG. But to give you an idea, that's the kind of investment it was. So even though I took an extra year as a med student, I skipped a year, at least a year, by doing that. So I skipped at least a year, maybe even two years. It might have taken me two or three years to get onto the training program. Who knows? Um, and I saved that by doing the BMSI. So I think that was the best investment I made. What would you have wanted to have known about ONG before getting into it?
maybe the unpredictability. I think that would have been nice to have known. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's kind of it's kind of um, common sense if you like, but it would have been nice to have known how unpredictable it is. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm a fairly structured person. I like to know where I'm going to be, when I'm going to be there. So it's that makes it a challenge as well. Uh, but but it, it teaches you a bit of flexibility, which is important, and you have to be very organised to be able to manage it. Uh, but I think it would have been nice to have known that beforehand. Yeah. And last question: Take us back around about ten years when you were in your internship. What advice would you have given to yourself? <laughs> so this is the thing. I actually think I wouldn't give any extra advice to me now uh, because I feel like I don't have regrets. So I feel like uh, that at each point where I've had to make a big decision, I've been fortunate enough or maybe I've just done enough work up to that point that I've made the right decision. So, so far up to this point, I've always made the right decision. I think part of that is because I don't really say no easily, which is not a good thing all the time because it means you get busy very very quickly uh, and can get stressed. But it means that I do things, I take those opportunities. I do a BMED Sci, I do a PhD, I do the training program, I apply for the training. You know, I don't, I don't sort of hold back. I'm not afraid of failing. That's another way to put it. I'm not afraid of stuffing up because if you're afraid of stuffing up, you won't go anywhere. You'll just be st- stuck in mm-hmm. the rut. So if you, but if you're like, oh, I'll apply for the ONG training program. Worst thing that happens is they reject me and I'll apply next year. All right, I'll apply. So apply. Oh, I got in. Whoa, that was a surprise. And then, you know, you go from there. So it's like a, so I don't think I would have, I would have probably just, told myself do exactly what you're doing yeah. <laughs> um, the thing is, now you can only fail three times that's, yeah, yeah exactly so that's the thing so like i said i wouldn't have i probably wouldn't have applied as an intern if it was the current rule um because there would be no point there's no way you get in yeah um so but now uh yeah i think uh 10 years from now what i would have told myself oh yeah i don't know what i would tell myself as an intern buy a house early yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the earlier buy a house the better yeah yeah, yeah. make those early investments <laughs> yeah Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, good. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. All right, guys. See you next week.